Good day, everybody, and welcome to The Gadfly. What we're going to be talking about today is the question, what is conservatism? Specifically, what I think it is that all liberals need to know about conservatism, and of course, what all conservatives need to know as well. The first point I'd like to make is, and I think it's probably the most fundamental point about uh, conservatism, is that we are imperfect by nature. This is the most foundational principle of conservative philosophy, and it is the conviction that because all human beings are fallible and imperfect by their very nature, no society or government can ever be perfect. I mean, just think about what that means in terms of all the social planners that have infested human history for the last couple of thousand years. If it is true, as I think it is, that human beings are imperfect by nature, and that therefore no society or government can ever be perfect, then you have to ask yourself, what have we been doing? Trying to engineer societies for some form of political and social and moral perfection, when uh, in principle it's impossible. And this is the reason that all utopian schemes for political, social, and moral perfection, attempting to organize human life according to some theory of progress or other, are unnatural and therefore ought to fall automatically under suspicion. There's an old saying that the best is the enemy of the good. Well, this was a caution to all malcontents. It means if we destroy something that has always worked tolerably tolerably well, in other words, it's good, and we attempt to replace it with something we imagine will be perfect or the best, we will never reach perfection because, as I say, reality and we ourselves are never perfect. But in the process, we will have destroyed the good. Accordingly, the ordinary conservative tends to accept this imperfect world, in fact, may love it deeply because His feelings and affections are attached to the here and now, uh, just as they are. The liberal, in contrast, tends to be a malcontent, rarely happy with things as they are, very happy with things as he thinks they ought to be, and by the way, uh, as he thinks he might be able to force you to accept them. This tendency was well described in John Stuart Mill's autobiography, where he came up with the opinion, and I'm quoting, that all the best and wisest of mankind, among whom he counted himself, of course, are dissatisfied with human life as it is, and their feelings are wholly identified with its radical amendment. So there was John Stuart Mill basically fessing up and saying that the best and wisest of mankind are not happy with things the way they are, and so they're darn well going to change them whether you like it or not. A second point I'd like to make about the nature of conservatism is that concrete experience tends to be preferred to abstract theory. I use the phrase philosophy of life to imply a general attitude rather than an ideology or a speculative theory. For the conservative is suspicious of all speculative reason whenever used in isolation from experience. Such as we find, where? Well, in paper charters, in declarations that give voice to sweet-sounding but abstract concepts such as 
here we go, the rights of man, or humanitarianism, or natural rights. Some have described these things as a form of legal Protestantism, because just as Protestants believe they have a direct relationship with an indwelling God, talking about Jesus as their friend and all that sort of thing, human rights, too, are said to be godlike and indwelling in the human being. But for the conservative, the problem with all such abstract concepts, get this, I think it's important, they are never self-interpreting. Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, for example, is full of all kinds of promissory concepts, which are not self-interpreting. They are like empty pots waiting to be filled with meaning, usually meanings invented by politicized judges or, and or interest groups. The French Declaration of the Rights of Man, for example, and the Constitution of the former USSR were both replete with such glowing promissory terms, and both of them legitimized state terror. So the conservative conviction is that it is better to rely on long-trusted actual customs, traditions, laws, and practices from a thousand years of human experience than to rely on vague and abstract promissory concepts. Uh, this especially ought to scare you when you see people making these promises with machine guns in their hands. Another feature of conservatism, which I think is a bit shocking for people to hear at first, but it's incredibly important, is the idea that reason is not sufficient. There's a long-standing conservative conviction that reason is a means to an end and not an end in itself, and that so-called pure reason cannot possibly produce the good life. And here's why. It's because whatever reason can create, reason can destroy. After all, nothing was more reasonable than the argumentation of Hitler's PhDs and physicians and scientists who all sat around his table, reasoning that it was better to gas various classes of patients and disabled children, uh, and then, of course, Jews, intellectuals, dissidents, etc., than to keep feeding them because the money was needed to buy bullets for soldiers at the front. That was the argument of reason which justified this murdering initially. In general, then, the conservative believes that we are not creatures who are very moved by reason or logic unless it is being used to defend our own desires and loyalties. It was Hume who said, reason is the slave of the passions. I think that's important, and I repeat it. Reason is the slave of the passions. He said that because we are predominantly creatures of self-interest, passion, instinct, and emotion, and the restraints on these features of our being must come not only from ourselves, but as Aristotle put it so long ago, from our second nature or from the socialization via long experience, good habits and manners, customs and prudence. Prudence. Hard. We never hear that word today. What is prudence? I would define it as follows. Prudence is doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. That's a wonderful definition of prudence and one I wish we, we heard more in the public square. 
The next point about conservatism I want to make is that liberty, and again, this is shocking, excuse me, to most people, that liberty is a qualified good. The fact of human imperfection impinges directly upon the question of liberty, of course, for liberty is another double-edged sword. Those who are interested in this topic of liberty or freedom, by the way, may find another podcast I have done on the six kinds of freedom, which is available on my website uh, of interest. For as Burke warned, and here is a key phrase again, a key statement. It really jarred me the first time I heard it, and I thought, how true that is. He said, and I'm quoting, liberty, when men act in bodies, or in groups, in other words, is power, unquote. That is itself a powerful insight warning us that beyond the establishment and defense of a cluster of natural liberties essential to moral life and a flourishing society, you better watch out. For when you hear people clamoring for more freedom, be sure to find out what it is they intend to do with it. Or you may end up in their ideological or in their real gun sites. The French revolutionists slaughtered their fellow citizens with great passion in the name of liberty, as have all totalitarians since, by the way. Liberty is the most commonly asserted end for which almost any means can be justified. In short, because the liberty of some can easily be used to destroy the liberty of others, beware of the thoughtless praise of liberty, the positive use of which requires much discernment. So this leads to another point about conservatism that I think is worth memorizing, and that is that restraints are as important as freedom, maybe more important, Burke drives home this conservative insight, and I'm quoting again, that the restraints on men, as well as their liberties, are to be reckoned among their rights, unquote. He meant that just as our basic practical liberties are inherited as achievements of our civilization, we also inherit the many practical restraints on our liberties, and these serve to protect us from our neighbor's unfettered will just as they protect our neighbor from our own unfettered will. It is not contradictory to say that restraint is the guarantor of liberty. So this brings me to another point uh, about conservatism, and that is that institutions shape individuals. This is another foundational conservative belief, that all human beings are born unfinished subject to a multitude of strong and conflicting biological forces, desires, and emotions, and so their flourishing depends to a very great extent on the flourishing of social and moral institutions, and not the other way around. Long-lived human institutions are the formative vehicle of our human second nature, Aristotle's phrase, as I mentioned before. The most important institutions are such as marriage and family, religion, social customs, manners, core political, legal, social, moral, and economic forms and ideals of behavior, the rule of law, community understandings of right and wrong, and the duties and obligations that flow naturally from these. Respect for property, 
the freedoms associated with voluntary exchange and contracts, and much more. Such institutions are produced by the civilizing process over a long period of time, and they finish our human development by providing the standards and boundaries of what David Hume called our common life. However, they can easily be mortally weakened by radical egalitarian regimes that intentionally, or even unintentionally, enter into a competition for citizen loyalty with their own societies. They do this by offering free societies all sorts of government services and, you know, regulators and inspectors and providers of all sorts of things from, you know, dance lessons, um, art classes, uh, uh, sports sports facilities, etc., etc., and take away from those otherwise free societies the kinds of things they would be doing for themselves without government. In other words, they end up seeking to replace the freely formed institutions and activities of free of human beings in free societies to replace them with government activities. All they want in exchange for that, of course, is a lot more of your money. And this is how they end up weakening these formative institutions, not by force necessarily, but by a kind of seduction. This brings me to the term latent functions. Central to the defense of institutions is the conviction that if they have endured, it is probably because they have latent functions of which we tend to be unaware, but that in large part explain their durability. In other words, in all settled societies, there exists a kind of pre-conscious complex of institutional realities that should be disturbed as little as possible. The latent functions at work in all civilizations are the embodied wisdom of their history. I remember the story I think I told on an earlier podcast about an American official in Ceylon in the 1930s. He said above the desk of the British uh, office, there was a co- Ceylon was a colony then, so everybody came in to, to the British offices to see uh, what they could change or what they could get and whatever. And above the desk was a sign that said, don't ask, it's just the way we do it. And this fellow remarked how amusing it was to see people come in all kind of worked up to get something from the British government, the colonial government. And they read the sign and they just kind of smiled and turned around and went back home. So I think what, what this is getting at is that they're This was an office that had latent functions, which did the job, you know, got things done, and nobody really knew what the the reason for the original uh, function of that institution was. But it worked, so their idea was, leave it alone. Don't ask. Another uh, feature of conservatism I think it's important to keep in mind, it's especially true when it comes to economic matters, is the notion of unintended consequences. The inevitable inevitable moral hazard of wholesale change of established institutions will usually be a lot of unintended consequences, resulting in a worse situation than what we originally had. Our foundational institutions are the incarnation of the best that has been said and done by our progenitors, and it should be respected and conserved 
as the embodiment and the gift of their generosity, wisdom, and sacrifice. In this sense, each and every human being is always, quote, in the middle, unquote. I mean to say, <clears throat> benefiting from past generations in the present while observing obligations to future generations, which will in turn benefit from us, and so on, as long as civilization is upheld and endures. The persistent emergence of unintended consequences following radical change should serve as a break on all hasty social reform. The conservative, by the way, is not against social reform, but he's saying it has to be proven. It has to be proven as something better than what we're already doing, and it seldom is. That's why I say these hopes and dreams of leftists in particular are usually promissory, promissory policies, which have no actual proof and practice. And that's why we have to be careful about unintended consequences. This leads to another feature of conservatism, which is very important. The idea that there should be no change for its own sake. The conservative recognizes that without some means of change, no society can exist for long. So he is not as his opponents like to think, opposed to reasonable change where the benefits have been satisfactorily demonstrated and the bar should be set very high for that demonstration. But he is opposed root and branch to radical change for its own sake or simply for ideological reasons. I mean especially for that. He suspects that words like new and change and hope are a signal that the political manipulator is on the prowl, looking for more of the people's money to engineer the society of the future according to a personal vision of utopia. So, long before any actual change is approved, the conservative insists that the burden of proof that the change will be beneficial is always and should always be on the innovator to demonstrate. For a decent society is like a spider's web, an intricate structure very difficult to create, but easy to destroy. So unless the virtues of a proposal for change can be demonstrated as indubitably superior, and I mean indubitably superior, to what is custom, customarily done, it is better to stay with the true than go with the new. This brings me to another point I think is very important, which is that social freedom, what Burke called social freedom and what I call social freedom, is prior to individual freedom in importance. Not always, perhaps, but generally prior. Like the liberal, most conservatives will defend certain qualified individual freedoms to the death. But unlike the liberal, he will insist on the general priority of social freedom. This entails the conviction that individual freedom must be evaluated not according to personal pleasures or satisfactions, but according to its contribution or damage to the common good of all. This is not far from the proposal of Immanuel Kant, who argued that in de deciding the morality of an action, each of us must behave as if we are moral legislators, approving our own choice for others who are similarly situated. Another way to express social freedom is to say that the rights and freedoms of all must generally be prior in importance to individual rights and freedoms and not the other way around. 
which is the way it is mostly today, I think. The conservative is especially wary that in this age of hyper-individualism, individual rights and freedoms are too often used as a battering ram to demolish community rights and freedoms. The Golden Rule is a conservative institution that has been with us for millennia, but even that rule assumes a prevailing and universal standard of human decency without, without ever describing what that is. This brings me to another conservative understanding here, or belief, or conviction, which is that custom is the mother of legitimacy. That is a pithy insight from the 19th century French thinker Joseph de Mestre, to the effect that in the very end, it is not abstract propositions on paper that will protect us or proffer the good life, but rather the deepest and most cherished political, social, and moral customs and standards of the people, including in the word custom, all sound habits, manners, and prejudices in the original sense that, that, pos- that positive prejudices are long accepted social and moral prejudgments that enable human societies to function smoothly in the first place. For Burke, the three P's that guide all established societies are prejudice in the sense that I just explained. In other words, kind of prejudgments so that you don't have to rethink everything you're doing all day long. So that's a kind of preconscious knowledge that we absorb from our society that gets us through life, as I say, without submitting everything to the test of logic. The second P is prescription, which is the social and moral inheritance of the customs, traditions, and rights of all past generations. And then what Burke called presumption, or the assumptions that we take for granted. Why? Because all other people do. In other words, a kind of folk wisdom of the species. Okay, this brings me to the next point, which is that society, human civil society, is an organic and not a contractual reality. For the conservative, civil society is not an abstraction. It is a real, natural, and organic product of historical experience that is prior in existence and importance to individuals. For this reason, the liberal social contract theory as spelled out by such thinkers as John Locke and most modern libertarians, that is, the notion that civil society and government are a contractual creation of the people's will, must be considered a fantasy a falsification of history, and illogical to boot, simply because, as Hume again argued, in order for a contract creating civil society to come into being, an entire structure of civility, law, and custom, protecting and policing such a contract and a functioning society would already have to be in place. Even more damaging When asserted as true, contract theory implicitly delegitimizes every government on earth because none have been founded by contract. And if accepted, even though false, contract theory places civil society on a footing of perpetual revolution, subject always to overthrow by the fluctuating passions and popular will of the day, without gratitude or respect for the sacrifices of the past 
or do you care for generations to come? Another feature of modern conservatism is the notion that the welfare state is an aberration. The conservative faults the concept of the welfare state and the comprehensive, more more comprehensive managerial entitlement state that has succeeded it, and even, I should say, what I call libertarian socialist states, such as we seem to have today, as a prideful aberration that willfully neglects the proper duty of government to refrain from excessive governing. For welfare states become powerful, either intentionally or willy-nilly, by entering into a deadly war for control against the authority of their own natural civil societies. They do this by progressively taking over or substituting their own services for a plethora of traditional forms of social authority and voluntary association and civil activity by means of legislative bullying and tax plunder. That's enough to make you believe that it's wrong. Another issue important to a conservative, I think, is the notion of morality and religion. The conservative maintains that the human being is a a religious animal, that all humans manifest a craving for the sacred in some way, formal or informal, and that even adamant secularists in a variety of covert ways seek to sacralize their own disbelief. Some critics, in a phrase I like, they call this concealed religion. In other words, they don't think of it as religious, but it's what it is. For the religious conservative, there is a divine principle in the universe, and God, however inscrutable, must be the author of all things, because nothing can create itself. In order for it to create itself, by the way, it would have to precede itself in existence, which is obviously logically impossible. Less religious conservatives will say that religion is an essential and inexpensive form of crowd control and that everyday secular morality survives still only because it expresses the moral surplus of a former religious morality. But in any case, there's a transcendent natural moral law that is somehow written on the hearts of all. If it is true, as I think it is, that morality sits on religion, philosophy sits on morality, and all economic and political life unfold accordingly, then whenever religious belief collapses, the rest is going to fall in slow motion like dominoes. The conservative will also tend to argue that an atheistic or secular humanist society in which man is worshipped instead of God is eventually doomed because without any transcendent good as a standard, transcendent moral good, that is, as a standard, the only reference point for good or evil is human will in all its relativity with no higher moral reality or natural law to guide or constrain. Then, as Dostoevsky's most nihilistic characters have warned us, if God is dead, everything is permitted. This leads me to another point, is the importance of family and marriage to the true conservative, who says that all human beings are born of a mother 
and begotten by a father. And so they share in an eternal family triangle, a mother and a father living with their dependent children. This is the first and most basic of all societies, a social entity that survives all states and regimes and that must be considered the bedrock of all other political and social institutions. It is also the only possible procreative unit. And so the protection and conservation of the family is de facto essential to the protection and conservation of civilization. Heterosexual marriage must therefore be socially and morally privileged over all other human relationships, and all national family policy should be aggressively pro-family and pro-child before being pro-adult or pro-individual. The conservative deplores the trend toward autonomism and the atomization of the molecule, the social molecules of civil society, so to speak, and policies that implicitly or explicitly attack the family as an institution in the name of individual equality and rights. These are to be deplored if they're taken as preferences. The next point is that for the conservative, difference and inequality are natural. The conservative believes that with basic freedoms under law in place and defended, there will always naturally emerge a whole range of talented, skilled, intelligent people and charismatic leaders, and therefore a kind of aristocracy or hierarchy of authority, which is natural to all human groups. And as I have said before and in previous podcasts, it's too easy for people to confuse authority with power. Power is only held by governments or perhaps by guards in prison camps. But in the normal sense of the word, power is coercive. Uh, You can't resist it. Power is, is a form of police control over human beings, always in the wings, ready to act if you misbehave or, or if you don't do what the government thinks you ought to do. Authority is different. It's more of a moral feature of human societies. Okay, and I think that when this hierarchy, which I've just mentioned, of, of authority emerges, it is natural to all human groups. And the resulting social differentiation and distinction of high and even heroic character and moral worth are essential for the modeling of the young. The conservative defends this kind of natural inequality as a vibrant and certain sign of a free and flourishing society. And when these things, these forms of hierarchy and natural authority disappear or are subsumed under the coercion of state power, society is at an end. Also defended by the conservative, by the way, is the conviction that the strong have an obligation to help, to teach, and to lead the weak, less gifted, and more vulnerable, and that this responsibility is a permanent obligation of those with merit and talent. No small matter now is the another feature for the conservative that is important is the free enterprise and free markets. Like the liberal, the conservative appreciates the importance of free markets under law, the constitutional right to own property, the flourishing of enterprise, protection against force and fraud and cartels, and all related matters as central to the strength and protection of civil society 
and the best means for the low to raise themselves high. But at the same time, the conservative deplores the over-commercialization and money-vulgarization of everyday life. A key concern is that rampant commercialism, the turning of all things human into commodities, may, like the overgrown state, corrode the very social and moral institutions and customs that historically have restrained the worst effects of both. Here are my last two points now for the conservative, one of which is that the common law is preferred to code law. There is a distinct and age-old conservative preference for English-derived common law rooted in real concrete human experiences and case law precedents that permits us to do whatever we want except what is forbidden by the law. And this is important because it's quite distinct from a code law which is rooted in an abstract legal concept that, or concepts that permit us to do only what is permitted or decreed or defined by the code, such as is typical in code law jurisdictions like France and Quebec. Especially disliked in all British-derived systems is the French notion of immunity or non-responsibility or inviolability from criminal prosecution granted to government officials for wrongdoing in the course of their duties. In the British or Westminster system, when it comes to criminal activity, all citizens, all citizens are equally punishable and equal before the law and prosecutable. My last point then, in this brief and not complete, an incomplete description of what it means to be a true conservative, is the preference for a strong but a limited state. The conservative preference is, as I say, is for a state strong strong enough to protect citizens against force and fraud and to defend us against enemies, to create and protect a framework for the enjoyment of liberty under law, handle policing and the usual national and international functions of government. But most crucially, and this aspect has been ignored by lots of conservative governments, to safeguard the rule of subsidiarity. Again, the word is subsidiarity. This is the idea that all human action and self-governance should be completed at the lowest possible level before a higher level of authority is invoked. This means that in true conservative philosophy, if not always in conservative politics, there is a strong resistance to the ever-present encroachment of power and centralization the tendency for larger national powers to invade and control the next lower level of government, like provinces or states, regional authorities, municipalities, and so on. And that the lower level, and for the lower level in turn to invade the next lower level, again, cities, towns, villages. This is only to say that in conservative philosophy, there's a clear moral preference for bottom-up local self-governments over top-down central control. Okay, that brings me to the end of this brief summary of what it means to be a conservative. I think it's important for all conservatives to refresh their thoughts uh, on these points, and it's especially important for people who think of themselves as liberals who may not have understood that this is what conservatives believe and uphold uh, to listen to these points of view and think of 
about them deeply. I, I can't believe how many liberals I meet who I get into a debate with them, and after a little while, uh, I, I find them kind of coming over and saying, well, that makes sense, or that makes sense. Hey, that's what I believe. And I say, well, you're talking like a conservative now. <laughs> At least it gets a laugh, but also it gets some thinking. So thanks a lot for listening to this episode of The Gadfly. Uh, try to take in the other episodes, the other podcasts, if you have time. And don't forget to uh, reach out for my books wherever you can. Once again, I, I don't write these books for money. I, I've never made a lot of money from them. A little bit, mind you, but not a lot uh, by any means. So the trouble with Canada still is, I think, a super overview of what's happened to Canada. Uh, my most recent book is The Great Divide, Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never Ever Agree. It kind of opens up the panoply of distinctions between conservatives and liberals. And there's a table at the end of each chapter that you can examine, which will help you to figure out where you stand. Okay, thanks for listening. Over and out.